G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The story. One day I was, my daughter was sitting on the front steps and she was just happily playing and all of a sudden the the young boys from the neighborhood were coming home from school and they began to throw stones at her to try to hit her. And one of them did hit her and she began to cry and I ran out, grabbed her, brought her inside and then I lost it. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, today we have part two of Christine Sakakibara's incredible story. Christine's originally from Queensland, but has lived for over 45 years in Jerusalem. Last time we heard how she came to live in Israel and how she met her future husband there. This time she's going to share more of her story, including some of the challenges they've encountered living as Christians in that part of the world and about the wonderful ministry work she's been involved in. All that and more is coming up today as we hear part two of Eric Scadabo's conversation with Christine Sakakibara. Welcome back to the program, Christine Sakakibara. Thank you. Glad to have you with us again. And you told us how you came to live in Israel after you became a Christian uh, in a kind of an interesting roundabout way, visiting some nuns in England. And now at this point in the story, you're living in Israel. You're married to your husband. What is his name? Shigerub, but his nickname is Bara. Okay, and so that's how you got the interesting surname of Sakaki Bara. Yes. And so now this was about the late 70s when the two of you were married, is that right? That's right, yes. In 1976 we were married. Okay, and so what was day-to-day life like living in Israel at that time? At that time it was extremely difficult. We were very poor and he was studying tourism at the Hebrew University. So we lived on the Mount of Olives because that was one of the cheapest places to live. Is that right? And we were the only Christians living in a Muslim neighborhood, Hmm. which um, they didn't exactly appreciate us being there. And um, uh, at that time... We had a little daughter, and I was expecting another child, and it was very challenging because Mm. we didn't have a car, and we had to walk everywhere, and we had cultural differences that were glaring at us that we never really thought about before. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, we were living in a Muslim community who only spoke Arabic and smitterings of Hebrew and I was just learning Hebrew, and I was learning basic Arabic uh, in evening classes. So the cultural shock of living in a culture that you were a minority Mm. really, really became um, so jaded at times, Mm. and it really tested your Christian resolve. You know, it's so easy to say you love everyone, and... Mm. You know, you're going to be Jesus to everyone. But that is not so simple when you belong to a minority that's unaccepted. Yeah. And uh, so we had many altercations with our neighbors. And um, 
the children in particular in the neighbourhood took great joy in burning our rubbish bin on a regular basis. Oh, wow. And, and um, if we did borrow a car or friends visited us, when they would go out to their car, they'd suddenly find themselves with flat tyres. And it was all just a very uh, uh, aggressive kind of place to live. Mm. But it was where we could afford to live at that time. Mm -hmm. And so we slowly had to adjust to living in an in a anti-Christian, anti-Western environment. And... Um, one day, I was, my daughter was sitting on the front steps. She was only about three years old, and she was just happily playing. And all of a sudden, the, the young boys from the neighborhood were coming home from school, and they began to throw stones at her to try to hit her. Oh, and wow. one of them did hit her, and she began to cry. And I ran out, grabbed her, brought her inside, and then I lost it. I took off after the boys and one of them in particular that was always the ringleader and I took off after him and I followed him through the alleys and ways and I did not relent. I was like a dog with a bone mm. and I went after him and he eventually ran into his house and I ran in after him and he ran to the back and there all of a sudden I see his mum standing there washing the floor with a big bucket of water next to her. And I looked at her, and in absolute rage, I said to her, your son is driving me crazy, and I've had enough. And she just looked at me, and I tried to communicate what I was saying, and then I just lost it, and I just looked at the bucket of water, and I picked it up, and I threw it over her head. Well, that got her attention. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness me, what have I done? Oh, and wow. I walked out and I went home and I was thinking, oh no, what have I done? Yeah. And, you know, it's so easy to say, I'm going to love everyone. Yeah. I'm going to be Jesus mm -hmm. to everyone. Mm -hmm. But when you're tested to the very, very end, sometimes you snap mm. and sometimes you fail. Yeah. And sometimes you fail miserably. And that day was one of my great failures. Or at least that was what I thought. Mm -hmm. When my husband came home, I didn't tell him about it because I thought, he's had a hard day, he's been studying, I don't need to uh, cause him any anxiety. Mm -hmm. But as we were having our early dinner, there was a knock on the door. He went to the door and he came back and he said, Christina, what did you do today? Oh, wow. And he said, all the neighborhood is out there. Wow. And they want us to come to their house. And so I was marched over to the neighbor's house. And in we walked and sitting in their huge living room were all the older people of the neighborhood and the husband and the wife and all of the children. And I looked at Muhammad, the brat that I'd tried to catch. And he looked at me and we both looked pretty miserable because we could both tell we were in trouble. Mm. And right at that moment, I realized that I was 
invited to share what is called in the Middle East a sulcha, a peace, a time of peacemaking, mm-hmm. reconciliation. And all the elders had gathered, and they had gathered to ask us to forgive them for rejecting us. Wow. For making our life miserable. You know, we as Christians, we think that we're the ones called to forgive all the time. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, it was this Muslim community asking us to forgive them. Wow. And so they passed the fruit, they passed the tea, and then they passed the bitter coffee that had been sweetened and said, we need to be family. Will you forgive us? And then Muhammad had to get up and come over and apologize to me. And then I had to get up and apologize to the mom that I'd thrown the dirty water over. Mm. And then the father said, from this point on, we are family for the rest of our lives. Wow. This impacted my life in a very deep way. Because it destroyed my concepts that it's always the Christian that's got to be the example. I learned at that point the value that neighbors become family in the Middle East. And it was many, many years later that uh, we were attending a sunrise service on the Mount of Olives. And um, riots broke out on the Temple Mount. And all of the Christians who were trying to get back uh, to their homes, began, their cars began to get stoned and smashed, and it became an incredibly dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. And we were in our car trying to get back to our home. And at that point, we'd moved from the Mount of Olives, and we had our small children in the car, And we were surrounded by a mob of angry people with stones and sticks, and they were rocking our car. And all of a sudden, we just began to pray, Lord Jesus, help us. And all of a sudden, somebody shouted, Stop. And this tall young man came out of the crowd. He knocked on the car window. I wound it down. And he said, Christine, how are you? And I said, Muhammad, you've grown so tall and handsome. Well done. And he turned to the crowd and said, stop what you're doing. This is my family. Make way for them. And I said, actually, I have family too, and they're behind me. And there were carloads of Christians coming from the sunrise service, I said, can you let them pass as well? And he said, of course, we're family. And that day, everyone was safely able to leave the Mount of Olives, all because of the incident of me throwing water over his mother. You see, this is the wonder of the Middle East. You have to take away your judgment And you have to make room for one another. Hmm. And I've learned so much about living in the Middle East, but I've also tasted the bad side, Hmm. the tough side, the painful side. 
You're listening to The Story. Our guest today is once again Christine Sakokibara, and as we just heard, she has incredible stories to share about her time living in Jerusalem. We'll hear more about her living in the Holy Land and about her heart for Jerusalem when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, our guest once again is Christine Sakokibara. And as we heard before the break, she's had some incredible experiences living in Jerusalem for over 45 years. Next, Christine continues to share some of the challenges she's faced living in the Middle East and about the ministry she's been involved in. Your daughter was okay after being hit by the rock? Yes, she was fine. She recovered. She bounced back. And that's the nature of the Middle East. You bounce back. Mm. Hmm. and you learn to cope. And um, I received some proposals from the same boys who now have a uh, uh, tire repair shop, and um, they've often proposed uh, all sorts of deals for my daughters, and um, jokingly, of course, but we still maintain the relationship, mm-hmm. and it's ongoing. And um, But in Israel, of course, because we were Christians and we were there automatically when my children began to graduate from high school, they were automatically called up into the army. Mm-hmm. And four of my five kids served army service in Israel. And um, still one of my sons is serving as a reserve duty soldier in a combat unit. This changes your life because when your son's are sent into combat units and sent to the front lines. And it's suddenly puts you in a different level of commitment of, do you really believe I can keep your children in safety? Mm. And my faith was greatly tested, but not just my faith. My children's faith was tested. And it was a challenge for our family. But the amazing thing that came out of it was my Israeli neighbors were in absolute awe that we would be willing to share the burden of the nation with them. Mm. And it forever changed the way they looked at us and the way they accepted us. And, you know, until today, every Christmas, we put up a Christmas tree Mm -hmm. and our neighbors um, come over every single Christmas and they get excited about Christmas and they begin to ask us, when are you having your open house? Oh, wow. And every ornament on our Christmas tree has been bought by our Jewish neighbors. Is that right? Whenever they travel, they find a Christmas shop (laughs) and they bring us back decorations. Oh, wow. And that Christmas tree isn't just a symbol of a holiday. It's a symbol of our relationship with our neighbors, mm-hmm. and it's very precious. You also started a ministry there. We have neglected to talk about that. How did your ministry start? I really began a ministry by default. Um, my husband and I, uh, a 
ministry of help, so to speak, mm-hmm. because in the Gulf War, all the families, uh, Christians, began to leave the land, and we decided that we would stay, that we wouldn't go anywhere. After all, this was our time to shine. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, you had to put plastic and make a sealed room and get tape so because Saddam Hussein had threatened to fire uh, missiles, long-range missiles on Israel, mm-hmm. and he stayed true to his promise, mm. and everyone was given gas masks, and you had to go into your sealed room. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at that time, we thought, what can we do? How can we help? And all of a sudden, we realized there were some neighbors in our building. We live in a building of eight floors mm-hmm. with 23 families. And we realized some of the neighbors were elderly and sickly. So we went and we asked them, could we help them to make them a sealed room? And we did. We bought plastic and masking tape and we sealed them a room. And then those neighbors began to tell other elderly neighbors. And before we knew it, we had built a wonderful ministry of plastic and masking tape. We got a little trolley. And we would go around the neighborhood and we got phone calls and we went into the schools and sealed the windows, the kindergartens, the old people home, to the sick, to the handicapped. And that was our ministry. Mm. So when people say to me, oh, I just wish God could use me, I tell people, your ministry is within your hand's reach. You Mm. don't need to be a rocket scientist. Just use what you have. And we used plastic and masking tape. Mm. And we went through the war. We sat in the sealed rooms with our neighbors. We shared the pain and the fear. And it was a terrifying time for us. But we came through it. And we were absolutely broke because there was no tourism for 10 months. But Mm. after the war was over... Food would begin to appear at our door. The doorbell would ring and there would be a delivery of groceries. And there was our neighbors, like ravens, sending food to us, Mm. saying thank you. And it was an awesome time, but the highlight of it was one day we got a brown envelope from the interior ministry. We opened it up and there was a letter. And it said, due to your faithful service, to the household of Israel. We want to make you permanent residents and part of the household of Israel for the rest of your lives. Wow. And that was the transformation and the thanks that Israel gave us. Plastic and masking tape. Mm. That's all it took. And that was your ministry, and now what do you do? Now I work with I get phone calls from hospitals and social workers, and I visit Holocaust survivors, victims of terror, soldiers that have been injured, Hmm. and even get called to sit with the dying. And Jesus said, occupy till I come. And that's what I do. I go to every need, and I sit with the dying, and I sit with the grieving mothers Mm. and I sit with the soldiers that are in shell shock and I visit the widows and the house of mourning and it's a beautiful beautiful experience
experience because actually I feel loved by them. Mm. I go to love, but they return so much more love back to me. Mm-hmm. And so thank God now I can argue in Arabic. I can <laughs> argue in Hebrew. I can even argue a little in Russian and French too. <laughs> I have learned to be part of the people and the land. Oh, wow. Now, when you originally went to Israel back in the 70s, you were one of only a handful of Christians at that time. We were the only Christian family in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Our children were the first Christian children to go to the state school in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were very unusual, uh, but we were always accepted. They embraced us, and it was a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing was that when I was learning Hebrew, my Hebrew teacher said to me, I want to give you some advice. Don't try to pretend you're something that you're not. Mm-hmm. If you are a Christian, be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Don't blur the lines. And that's what we have always done. Every, all of our neighbors, we are in the same building. They all know when I go to church. They all know when I have the prayer meeting. They all know our activities with the church. They know when I'm going to speak. And uh, right before prayer meeting time, they will send me emails or text messages uh, as I am even driving to church with prayer requests for their families, for their children, for the other neighbors. Mm -hmm. And I have never, ever blurred the lines. And I think that when Jesus said, be all things to all people, it means be him to people, Mm. not just a pretense. Don't try to draw them in undercover. No, be you. Mm -hmm. Be who I created you to be, Mm -hmm. fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, are there more Christians in Israel these days? Now, there's only 1% of the population of Israel is Christian. A lot of the um, Arab-speaking Christians, a lot of them have fled. And recently, we have had a huge influx into our secular Jewish neighborhood of Arab Christians who have fled their neighborhoods because of persecution from their Muslim neighbors. Mm. And they have found refuge in the Jewish neighborhoods. And so our neighborhood is quite unique in that we have secular Muslims living in the neighborhood who are lawyers and doctors and professionals, and you have Christian Arabs in the neighborhood, you have French-speaking Jews, Russian-speaking Jews, and the old-timer Israelis there as well. Mm. And it's become like a satellite neighborhood of Jerusalem, and they said it's the neighborhood that reflects understanding more cultural, religious, and spiritual understanding better than any other neighborhood in Jerusalem. And our neighborhood is called French Hill. Mm. And I really do believe that it's because we sit at the crossroads, the, one of the entrances, main entrances to Jerusalem, which uh, we overlook the Judean wilderness. And our neighborhood is the first neighborhood as you come up from the desert into Jerusalem. And so 
it really is a reflection of the power of the watchman standing on the wall Mm -mm. and protecting Jerusalem. Now, unfortunately, we're quickly running out of time once again. But before we let you go, what do you want our listeners most to know about Israel? I would love for the listeners to know that we as a family and every other Christian that is called to live in Israel cannot survive without your prayers. Life is hard. Life is challenging. And we need to be a positive witness to the Lord. But that takes great strength. So we would ask you to please pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love her. We cannot cope without your prayers. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us once again today. God bless you. That was Eric Scadabo chatting with Christine Sakokibara about her ministry and about some of the incredible experiences she's had living in Jerusalem for over 45 years. The name of her ministry is called Fields of Mercy. And if you'd like to contact Christine for more information, her email address is simply Christine in Jerusalem at gmail.com. And she abbreviates Jerusalem to JLM. So once again, that's Christine in JLM at gmail.com. And as we shared last time, the Bible says that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because it has a special place in God's heart. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jerusalem has a special biblical history. But what you might not know is that Jerusalem also has a special place in the future. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John has a vision for the future. And he says, An angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So it's exciting to hear that a new Jerusalem will play a part in the end times. It's fascinating. Well, thanks for joining us for part two of Christine Sakokibara's amazing story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.